stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Took a bit of a hiatus last week. And it's nice to know that we were actually missed. Um, got a few tweets, a couple of emails. Nice to know that if we died, people would miss us. Greg, that came out a bit of a surprise. That was the reason we did it, right? Just to make sure that, <laughs> to see if anybody's actually listening. I think I saw an episode of something like that once where somebody had their own funeral to see if the girl they were into <laughs> would come. I think it may have been friends. Happy to be back. Missed you very much. And as usual, we'll be digging into some of the hottest topics in politics, locally and internationally. First, we want to talk about food security. Um, it's something that anecdotally we've been complaining about. I know I've been complaining about. It just feels like everything's getting really expensive, especially food. So we wanted to look at the numbers and find out what's going on and how does it also affect the most vulnerable in society. You know, at the end of the day, if you're shopping at Checkers, shopping at Woolies, you complain that your, you know, your Marvel pudding's a bit more expensive. It really doesn't matter. But for people on the ground who are spending majority of their income on food, a small increase in the price of bread and the price of milli meal has a massive impact on their ability to survive. So we really just wanted to talk a bit about that. To talk us through the numbers, we'll be talking to Patrick Kelly, the Executive Manager of Price Statistics at Statistics South Africa. Uh, Patrick, can you hear us? I can hear you. Now, Patrick, I mean, just first question is just, I mean, looking when we look at indicators and the country and, and national indicators about the population and how people are doing, how important is, is something like food prices and food inflation as an indicator of, of how people are doing in the country? Well, food is obviously a basic necessity uh, for everyone, and uh, there's a minimum requirement of food that one would want to buy and consume so that you can live a healthy life, and that minimum is pretty much the same whether you're poor or rich. Uh, we all have the same body, and so what that means is that uh, the poor tend to spend a great proportion of mm. their total income on food mm. uh, compared to those who are better off. I mean, I mean, before we, we we jump into the impact, I'd love to just get an idea of you of the trend of food inflation. Um, what 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 has been the 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 increase in prices over the past couple of months? Yeah, sure. So, uh, average inflation, if we take the whole basket, in March was six point three percent. Food inflation, uh, we're talking annual figures here, was nine point eight percent. So we can see that food inflation is significantly higher than overall inflation. Uh, if we just break that down again to, to look at the poor and uh, the like, um, because we know food inflation has been climbing, uh, it is much higher for, for rural residents, for example, 13.6% in March for rural residents and uh, almost 12% for the poor. Uh, there's two main reasons why food inflation is as high as it is at the moment. Uh, the first and, and most kind of in-your-face reason is the drought. Uh, Drought obviously means farmers can produce less. Uh, there's therefore a shortage. Prices start to go up. We also have to import uh, basic commodities such as maize, and therefore the country is, uh, needs to pay whatever the going rate is on, on international markets. So we have seen quite significant uh, increases overall. Uh, if we just look at, at some of the food items, for example, uh, the, the ones that have been seriously affected, are more of your unprocessed, your um, uh, grains and your vegetables and your meat types of, of products uh, because those are more immediately affected by uh, the impact of, of the drought. 
Uh, the other main reason why we're seeing increase in food prices is changes in the exchange rate and the depreciation of the rand uh, a few months ago. So just to take a look at, at some of the rates in March, uh, bread and cereals uh, has increased by over 13% in the year. Uh, if we look at some of the other big ones, uh, oils and fats, so we're talking uh, cooking oil, uh, 18%. Uh, those are those are, are really the ones that have flown very high. We also see fruits and vegetables uh, also increasing almost 19% over the course of a year. Uh, fruits and vegetables are typically quite volatile, but these are massive increases. And uh, we also see big increases in, in sugar uh, and sugar-related products. So these these are, are products that uh, pretty much everyone consumes and everyone buys. Uh, Interestingly, certain products such as meat uh, do not increase quite as rapidly in the short term when we have a drought situation. Uh, this is largely because as the price of the food for animals, let's say it's corn, uh, increases, farmers decide that uh, they're not really going to make much more money by feeding their animals, uh, particularly those that are almost fully grown. And so then they start to sell those animals and they slaughter them and the meat goes to the market. Uh, you therefore have a, a bit of a glut or a surplus of meat products uh, in, in an initial drought period, which brings uh, the price down a bit. So, for example, on meat products, uh, we're only seeing 6% inflation, which is uh, you know, around about the average rate and lower than overall food. Uh, over time, though, we would expect to see meat prices starting to go up as that excess clears and it's purchased and Farmers are now having to raise their animals on the higher input costs. Hmm. Okay, Patrick, thanks for the really detailed breakdown. I just want to pick apart some of the things you've mentioned. So first, just the real basics. You mentioned 9.8% in March. Does that mean that on average, the, the average basket of food that a person buys is, is just under 10% more expensive than it was in, in March last year? That's exactly correct, yeah. Okay. So we've got a, a, a number of uh, food items, there's probably approximately 50 different food items that uh, we would measure uh, from month to month. Uh, and this is across the country. Uh, there's thousands and thousands of individual prices that go into those calculations. And yes, then on average, uh, that means that, that the price of food has increased approximately 10% since this time last year. Okay. And, and you said that's 13.6 for rural, for rural populations or rural families. Why, why, why are rural populations more adversely affected by, by these food increases? Why is it, why is it higher? Why is their rate higher than it is for urban populations? It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because, yeah. uh, a lot of food is actually grown and produced in rural areas mm. and you would think that they would have access to, to cheaper products. But I think that given the way modern economies work, it's got a lot to do with scale and food transport logistics networks. So what one finds is that although food may be grown in a rural area, it's transported to urban areas for processing, for packaging, uh, classification. A lot of food is sold through the big markets that you find in Joburg and Swanee, and, and then it's re-transported to uh, outlets, uh, to stores in rural areas. So you've got an additional cost uh, included there, but in addition... The number of people in rural areas is not as uh, vast as in an urban area, and so demand is a bit less. And 
you can't keep the same sort of numbers of stock, and this means that uh, overall there's a premium that rural residents mm. pay. And my next question is is around uh, just the percentage people spend. You mentioned that uh, that poor families spend up to forty percent of their monthly expenditure on on food. Um, is there any research on on how they then cope? If forty percent of your income is spent on food and that food is going up between ten and fourteen percent, is there any research or, or or studies on on what they then do? Do they buy less food? Do they buy different kinds of food? Uh, yeah. How does it affect their health and so on? Absolutely. So you'd find a number of things. Uh, first of all, uh, you would switch to cheaper products. Uh, so let's just say, for example, I was having uh, beef twice a week um, and uh, chicken, you know, other days and maybe nothing on uh, no meat on 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 uh, some days. Then maybe I would stop buying beef if it was more expensive, and I would switch to chicken as a cheaper uh, protein alternative. Uh, so you get that kind of substitution within product groups. Uh, you may find people then fully abandoning certain products. Let's say I used to buy eggs, and I think eggs are now very expensive. I no longer buy eggs. So I would I would adjust my food basket to cope with with increasing product uh, price increases in certain products. We call that substitution. What one may also find then is that because food is a basic necessity, I cut my spending on certain other products that maybe. I can make something last longer. So, for example, uh, perhaps I had a pair of trousers that I thought I needed to replace. Maybe I can make it stretch another couple of months, uh, and I spend that food uh, money rather on on food. Uh, but what one does find quite strongly, and this is an international phenomenon, is that people will continue to purchase other products. Let's just take a simple example of uh, uh, cell phone costs. Uh, it's very important for families to have some airtime available so that they can communicate with each other. Uh, there's, there's a lifeline in case of an emergency and the like. And people would continue to spend on that. Uh, people would continue to spend probably on transport costs uh, because you need to go, one, to, to shop, but also to uh, look for job opportunities or children are going to school and the like. So certainly you see that. But what I think is also quite worrying is that at, in these times of high inflation, uh, the, the nutritional content that particularly poor people are getting from their food may well drop, uh, and you may find people relying much more on, on staples, uh, which have a lower nutritional content. So that is a, that is a concern. Um, I think, uh, sorry, I you think, Yes. Shall I go ahead? Uh, so, yeah. But I think on, on, mm-hmm. on the flip side of that uh, is what one also finds is uh, because the poor do have this large proportion of food expenditure, food inflation is also at times lower than average inflation. And that means that it brings the overall inflation experience of the poor lower than the, the median, the, the average that the country as a whole is experiencing. Uh, this then gives uh, the poor perhaps a, a, a slight chance to, to kind of recover, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so that they, they can rebalance their expenditure across the items that they feel are important and that are critical for their well-being. Um, yes, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. In looking at some of your writing, there's, there's, there's a recommendation, uh, I think it's by Stats SA, that the kind of government relief that's most appropriate is actually shorter-term, shorter-term interventions for periods of high, 
high food inflation for low-income earners, people who are unemployed or underemployed. Could you talk a bit about that, the kinds of interventions that you think, based on the research and statistics that are most are most helpful or most appropriate? Yeah, I think it's a, a difficult one. Uh, I certainly am of the belief that although poor people certainly go through these periods of, of great struggle, uh, increasing the overall grant uh, to such households, uh, which is a long-term and, and uh, solution which you can't really reduce uh, in any short-term fashion, uh, would probably be, uh, let's call it overreach, uh, in terms of trying to, to support people through these difficult times. Uh, I, I personally think that, and this is not officially Statsesa's view, but I, I do believe that one wants to target those periods when there's high food inflation and look at the items that the poor buy in larger amounts. Uh, one could look at uh, possibly subsidies on particular food items. Uh, we do already have VAT exemption on most of the basic items, so that has already been used. But you could have short-term subsidies uh, for for these items. You could look at uh, possibly subsidizing farmers as well so that they uh, are able to not pass through all of the price increases that they themselves experience. Uh, but it needs to be very clear then that these subsidies are short-term and that when food prices return to the kind of normal long-term average that they're then withdrawn. Uh, I think that would that would be a balance between supporting the poor through these really difficult financial problems but also managing uh, the, the fiscus and, and the strain on, on public expenditure. Uh, my final question, Patrick, before we let you go is um, we've been talking about the March, stat- the March statistics. Is there, when can we expect the April ones? And would you expect that this food inflation will keep going up? Is it, is it likely to, to peak? Is it likely to drop? What do you anticipate? Say? The April figures are actually due out tomorrow. Okay. Uh, so we can look forward to those. And uh, under my oath of confidentiality, I can't tell you anything about that. <laughs> Just blink <laughs> once. One... Blink once if, if, my, if my food <laughs> bill will be cheaper tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think that if, if, if one looks at uh, food inflation, it's not something, besides fruits and vegetables, uh, it's not something that is volatile on a month-to-month basis. Uh, typically, it, it, it takes a couple of months to move in one direction or another. Uh, but the, the underlying reason why we have food inflation is because of the drought, and certainly that is still a massive problem in the country. So I think from that we could probably surmise that food inflation will continue to be a problem for some time. Uh, I think that if one looks at overall inflation, the other product that has a major impact is petrol. So and one needs to look then at what did the petrol price do in April? How did that actually increase in April? How does that change in April compared to the increase a year ago? And was it higher or lower? And that will tell us, uh, give us some indication as to the overall picture of annual inflation that, that we would produce. Okay. Patrick, thank you so much. Um, and we'll look out for the numbers tomorrow. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much for okay, the time. If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Talking about food, how much does it cost? How is it affecting you know those most vulnerable of us in society? Um, how is it impacting their health? How is it impacting their ability to survive? So that was just a look at the numbers. It can be very cold and hard sometimes just looking at percentages and statistics and you know, hoping to also get a bit of a, of a human perspective also. I think also the, the, the recommendation Patrick had for yeah. 
perhaps short-term subsidies yep. to relieve the the sort of acute pain of food price increases. I think should is one that should be looked at further. Yeah, I was thinking. I wonder the 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 cycle of from statistics and research through to findings through to policy implementation. Perhaps that's something we could look at another time. I wonder how long it takes to go from having those numbers to be able to very quickly implement a short-term, something like a short-term mm. subsidy. Well, I know the government's taking this issue quite seriously, particularly with drought relief for for sort of farming communities and and some other issues. But we, I don't think we've got time to go into today exactly what they're doing. But I think that would be another another sort of great great thing to look at. Absolutely. It looks like it's going to be a part two. Okay, next up we'll be talking to Vishwas Satga from the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign. Uh, Vishwas, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, yeah. fantastic. Uh, now, Vishwas, um, I'd love you could just start by telling us what is food sovereignty? Food sovereignty is a few things. First, it's a critique of the existing corporate control food system. It's a rival paradigm and concept to the idea of food security. Uh, food security really vests... Um, the whole challenge of realizing food needs in food corporations. Um, and food sovereignty provides a critique of that. Uh, I mean, since World War II, food security has been married to food aid, and we haven't seen, um, if you like, fundamental transformative solutions around the food question. The second thing about food sovereignty is that it's, it's really about building an alternative that's centered around the food producers and the consumers of food it's about protecting localized food cultures. It's about ensuring that people have control over their diets and the nutrition levels uh, in terms of the food consumption that they engage in. And then thirdly, it's really about building a movement. Food sovereignty is really about organizing across society uh, to ensure that we can put food sovereignty in place in terms of local communities, villages, towns, cities, and so on, so that uh, the food system um, is basically determined uh, by those inside it. Oh, thanks for the thorough breakdown. I mean, I'd love to get more insight into this, what you're describing as a corporate control. So I'd love if you could just take, you know, one one element, perhaps bread. I know there was the bread march last week and talk us through sure. this, this corporate control and how this sort of capitalistic entrenchment on this, something like food can impact the, you know, everyday person. Right. I mean, the food economy is made up of value chains, and um, the, the wheat-to-bread value chain is very interesting in South Africa. And essentially, it's controlled by about four corporations, uh, Premier, Tiger Brand, Food Corp., and I think one other. And they, they basically control the kind of milling process. Uh, they control the kind of uh, production of the bread on a sort of mass industrial scale. And, of course, they supply that then into uh, retailers. Now, basically in 2007 and again in 2010, we had evidence of collusion amongst these uh, four large corporations that controlled this value chain. Uh, the Competition Commission kind of blew the whistle on this, uh, including a, a judgment by the Constitutional Court um, kind of deriding and exposing the abhorrent behavior of these corporations. And essentially what you are dealing with here is a staple. Bread is a staple. Most South Africans eat bread on a daily basis. And because it's a staple and because there is demand for it, it's a money spinner for these corporations. Hmm. And, and as a result, um, you know, it registers in their annual profit earnings as, as a major money spinner. So controlling bread, pushing up the price of bread makes money in this country. Now, 
we are concerned about a few things. We are concerned that in the context of the drought, uh, imported wheat, and this is grain South Africa has shown this through their whistleblowing, imported wheat is much cheaper than what we have in South Africa, and that they've argued that actually the price of bread should be coming down. What we are seeing instead is that the price of bread is going up in the context of the drought. Now, there are different, there are different data on this. Some say between 4 and 5% increases. Um, other data suggests, if you look at Blue Ribbon, that it's much higher than that, almost 20% increases. Um, and, and we believe that, that is, that's got to do with profiteering. Um, I think the third thing that's concerning us is that the squeeze of high food prices in the country right now is really taking a toll on household income. Uh, we've di- food inflation has diminished the value of social grants um, that the state gives out. Uh, we've seen you know, almost 27 million people earn less than 3,000 rands in South Africa. And from studies that have been done, at least between 40 and 60% of poor household income is spent on food. So if the price of staples and the price of food goes up, it really hits those households very, very hard. So it's in that context that we are saying that there has to be, a, if you like, a decline in the pricing of staples, uh, particularly bread. We think it must be much more reasonably priced given the societal crisis that we are having. And we've handed a memorandum to this effect, pick and pay. Uh, we're going to be emailing it to the others who didn't come. Uh, we've handed it to the Human Rights Commission, also calling for an investigation into this issue so that we can verify things much more closely. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's, this is a clear example of how monopoly control of the food system can actually condemn people to hunger. Um, I love that you mentioned the Constitutional Court earlier, and you've mentioned some of the things you are doing. I'd love if you could just delve deeper into the legal options uh, that are available to, to your campaign and to everyday individuals to investigate things like food prices and, and perhaps uh, press charges or, or ask for more transparency about things like food prices. What are the legal options? Yeah, I mean, let's just take a step back and understand, like, what's at the heart of the political economy of the food system. And that's got to do with market forces uh, determining the price of, 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 of food, and particularly stables, including bread. What that means is the state, once upon a time in South Africa, actually coming out of apartheid, had high levels of regulation, uh, even degrees of subsidization and so on. And that, that ensured that food pricing in, in South Africa was regulated to an extent. Now... We don't have that right now. And hence, what we've done is we've unleashed a non-violent, democratic engagement with the food system in South Africa. And that's why the National Bread March. And we are surfacing all of these contradictions and, if you like, problems. Um, so that's the one option that we are going to pursue. Uh, we're going to have rolling bread marches happening in communities in different parts of the country mm. to have this national conversation. So that's the first pressure point. Uh, so it's democratic, it's within our legal rights, it's non-violent, and, and, it, and, it's, and it's putting the spotlight on the corporations. The second thing is we are, if you like, apprehensive about using the Competition Commission because we've had two moments of collusion, and that hasn't solved the problem through the Competition Commission. So we are now asking the Human Rights Commission, and the legal argument here is about our right to food. Section 27 of the Constitution provides for all South Africans to have um, the right of access to food. And I think our argument is that um, that right is being violated when profiteering kind of comes to the fore, particularly around staples. 
So we, we invited the Human Rights Commission to investigate this issue, and that means getting more information about how pricing is happening uh, amongst these corporations, um, looking more closely at um, how they are dealing with input costs and things like that. Um, so that's on the agenda. We, we are planning on having a meeting. Actually, the Human Rights Commissioner who received our memorandum has invited us to a follow-up meeting, and so we're planning that. Um, I think the first issue that we are really trying to kind of consider here is whether we should uh, engage in criminal charges um, in terms of the violation of our right to food, given the profiteering. Mm. Um, we haven't tested the Constitution um, in this way, uh, but maybe the time has come. But I think the idea is to you know, use all of these tactics to draw attention, to shame these corporations, and hopefully you know, speak truth to conscience. And, and hopefully they realize that uh, there's a lot at stake um, with profiteering from staple foods, particularly bread. This was my final question before I let you go. Um, I'd love if you could just give us some more details about the, the communities you're working with and, and the feedback you're getting from them around the impact on food and food prices on the ground. I mean, we had a very academic discussion before this about percentages and numbers and medians and so on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can really become a very academic exercise. So I'd love if you could just yeah. give us some of the human stories about the, the impact on yeah. food prices and, and what, it's, what it's doing to livelihoods and communities. I mean, re- research that's been done shows that those that are on the verge of hunger in the society eat a mix of uh, sugar and water and, and bread to fill their bellies. And they try and fill their bellies for a few days. Now, that's the reality we are trying to kind of, if you like, speak to as the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign. Our campaign is made up of uh, organizations, communities, and movements in the agrarian sector, in the food justice space, the solidarity economy, which includes waste pickers, the unemployed people's movement, and so on, uh, including the children's movement in South Africa. Uh, we are also organizing with the environmental justice movement in South Africa. So those are the if you like, the, the social forces inside the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign. And if you like, in our ranks, um, there are the, the hungry uh, that make up the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign. At our drought speak-out, which preceded the, the National Bread March, ordinary farmers that we brought from the drought-stricken provinces were giving testimony, a public testimony, and it's a pity the media never came to listen to this. But they were talking about how they've been compromised um, in terms of the drought, the financial impacts on their lives, and the fact that as farmers, they can't even feed their own families. And that's, that's the other reality um, that's, that's, that's at the heart of all of this. Um, the other point uh, that has been made by people that came to the, the, the drought speaker, including a hunger tribunal we had last year, was that uh, it's really tough to survive. Um, I mean, particularly women are bearing the brunt of all of this. They are skipping meals. Uh, they are eating less themselves so that their children can eat. And we had testimony to this effect. So this is the underbelly of all of this. Yes, this is beyond the numbers. This is the faces. This is the realities. These are the conditions under which people are trying to, to actually survive in this country. And our campaign is basically trying to surface these issues in society it's trying to give that platform for all these voices to be heard. Um, and as I said, it's been really disappointing that the media never came to our drought speak out to hear. We brought farmers from different parts of the country, including the region, southern Africa. Uh, and there was news right there to be made. And it's a pity. But thank you for giving us uh, this slot uh, on your program. 
Rufus, anytime. Thank you so much, and please keep up the excellent work. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Goodbye. If you're just tuning us, the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central, we're talking about food, prices, security, how is it impacting those most vulnerable in society. I'm going to change gears a bit uh, to something Greg's been following quite closely. Greg, you were in court last week following this? I'm just wondering which issue is in court. <laughs> well, last week there's been so many sort of constitutional well, court judgments, high court things. Um, but I was obviously referring to the to the South Gauteng um, High Court's uh, silicosis judgment. And I think we've got uh, Section 27 legal researcher John Stevens on the line to talk about that. John, are you with us? Oh, hey, I'm here. And I think <laughs> listeners might recognize John's voice. I think we've featured him once or twice before. Yeah. And John... I was just thinking back before when, when I called you before about when I saw you outside of court on Friday. And I should tell people that you, you work with Section 27, who is, uh, sort of legal representatives of the Treatment Action Campaign and Sonka Gender Justice, who've come into the case. And so you're, so you're very much on the side of the mine workers and, and the dependents and, and, and who it's affected. But, I remember seeing you outside of court and you were ecstatic. You were sort of like, you just won the Champions League or something like that. Yeah, it was a it was a big day. Uh, the world's different uh, this week than it was uh, last week. Uh, uh, to, to take us through you know, that. as many yeah, as I, I, I'll unpack that. Well, look, uh, this time last week, as many as half a million people woke up in South Africa and uh, neighboring countries, uh, and they were sick. They were poor, uh, and they had been wronged, and they had no no chance of ever even having a shot at accessing justice. Uh, they were too poor. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have access to legal services. Uh, and they, they had been wronged, and they knew they'd been wronged, and they wouldn't ever be able to make that right. Uh, as of Friday, that's all changed. Uh, what the court did on Friday makes it so that those people, half a million people, can uh, have a shot at uh, accessing justice. It's a really amazing thing. Now, take us through that. There's been there's been quite a bit sort of written and discussed already on the High Court's ruling, and so so it certified the classes to go ahead and sue sue mining companies for silicosis and tuberculosis claims claims against those companies. But what what did the court actually rule? What what did sort of allow allow these different classes to do going forward? Right. So there's a few big parts of what what happened on Friday, uh, and I'll break a few of them down. The the main thing is that the mine workers asked the court to say, instead of going forward and having individual cases, you can have a class action lawsuit. And we call this is the first step, and it's called certification. It's when the court says these people are a class and they can proceed as such. And so. The mine workers asked the court to certify two classes, one being mine workers with silicosis and the other being ones with tuberculosis. And there's a number of criteria, such as you have to have worked in the mines between 1965 and today, underground for at least two years, et cetera, et cetera, some minor details. And if you meet these criteria, you're part of the class. Mm-hmm. Uh, what that means is that the named applicants in the class, and there's um, – what are there? There's um, 69 of them. Those people, there's 69 mine workers who are named. The court is saying, you people are representative of this group of people that might be as many as half a million people, 
and you, 69 people, can go forward and bring this trial, and the outcome of that trial will be binding on half a million people and all of the respondents. So um, the, the, the significance of that is, is what, what I said earlier. Those half a million people, almost none of them can bring cases. So the mines have been insulated against any accountability and liability for over 100 years of uh, watching people die and knowing they were doing it and not doing what they were supposed to do to prevent it. Uh, and now those people can, these 69 can go forward, fight the fight, uh, and then their efforts will redound to the benefit of the, the whole class, which could be as many as half a million. And uh, the mining companies have a incentive to do better, to mm. try to improve their standards. So that's one thing. The certification of class allows it to go forward uh, as a class action. There's another big element, which is really groundbreaking in law, which is a fancy term for it is called uh, transmissibility of damages. Um, and I'll, I'll, let me just break down. Basically, um, dam- there's two big types of damages in the world. One is called special damages, and that's for stuff like medical bills and loss of wages and all that type of stuff. And then the other is called... Um, general damage, and that's for stuff like pain and suffering is what we Mm -hmm. normally call it. In the past, up until Friday at 10 p.m. or 10 a.m. last week, uh, all damages for pain and suffering, general damages, died with the person was the term. So if you died uh, before you got your money, uh, those damages wouldn't go to your surviving loved ones, your, your, your spouse or your children. Uh, the court on Friday said that is inconsistent with our notions of justice. It violates the Constitution. Um, those damages must go to the surviving family. And in this case, it is a very, it's a very important from a, a gender equity perspective. Because what happened was men went into the mines, right? And they got sick and they came home and then women and, uh, and, and girls had to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in order to do so, those they sacrificed um, life opportunities, educational opportunities, professional opportunities, and they also exposed themselves to great danger, um, infection of their own, et cetera. Um, and, and and then you know the men die, and um, they don't have access to the damages the men would have gotten. Mm. And and the court said that that is patently unfair and that it's inconsistent with our Constitution. And they also said it is it just is a very strange idea that the mining companies would benefit from the early death that they caused, benefit by not having to pay damages. So they cause you to die early, and then that's a good thing for them because then they don't have to pay as much money to your surviving family. And so for all those reasons, they uh, they changed the law, or they, said, uh, they developed the law to say that that money must go to the uh, surviving families. And that's huge. That's a legal breakthrough uh, that will, really will uh, have, a, have a big impact. And it just opens up that whole, the whole sort of class of people that can claim damages now, doesn't it? Like, enormously. Well, that's right, yeah. yeah. That's right. That's what the court was saying when it's, it's, they were saying, you know, it, it would be a very strange outcome if a mining company could uh, be so efficient at killing somebody, could kill somebody quick, more quickly and thereby benefit by not having to pay as much. That's right. That's right. Um, that just seems to shock the conscience. Now it seems it seems that this this ruling on Friday is a huge step forward for both class action law in South Africa as well as 
attempts to claim sort of claim damages from from these large sort of corporates who who may even in the sort of um, apartheid period um, had a severely negative impact on people's lives. Yeah, that's right. So I want to talk about that on two levels. One is the specific about this case, and then the second is sort of the broader implications yep. for um, what lawyers would call access to justice. In this case, I mean, you know, I've said it. These people now have a shot at uh, holding the people who made them sick or killed them or killed their loved ones. They have a shot at holding them accountable. And so far, the process has been a really amazing one because it's it's begun to address this wound that runs through South Africa's history. You know, uh, the the mining industry, um, you know, at its zenith in the 80s, has employed like uh, 500,000 people, um, and just it's just this behemoth institution, and it's hurt so many. Uh, and it's brought great wealth, but it's brought great wealth to a very few and then left the black majority um, uh, sick or, or, or in graves in places like the Eastern Cape and the Sutu. Um, so, so far, the process has begun sort of to tell that story and address it um, in a similar way to maybe the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did. And if this thing now goes to trial... We will, the mining companies and, and the public will hear in excruciating detail, uh, the ways in which, uh, this industry exploited workers, the way it sat back for over a hundred years and knew that silicosis was going to kill people and knew how to prevent it and yet watched men dig their own graves and folded their arms because they thought that it would be cheaper to do so because they thought they'd get away with it. And so that process, if this goes to trial, will be a, uh, I hope, cathartic process and an important process at getting to the truth. So that's one of the things. Um, the second part is the implications for class action law. So class action law is, or the mechanism of a class action lawsuit is this very powerful legal mechanism that tips the um, balance. So um, unfortunately, justice access to justice, access to the courts is um, far, far more available to the powerful than it is to the poor, especially in South Africa. Um, and um, so people's notions of justice are affected by that, and people's ability to right wrongs that have been done to them is affected by that. Um, but a class action mechanism can help can help tip that balance a little bit back towards the poor, towards the vulnerable who want to take on power towards the uh, Davids of the world, who want to draw slings against the Goliaths of the world. So um, this mechanism is very underdeveloped in South Africa. It hasn't been used much in South Africa. And this judgment gives a lot of... Uh, it was groundbreaking because it says how people can use it. So this will have implications for all sorts of people. I mean, if you look at a country like South Africa with uh, levels of inequality and you have so many have-nots and so few haves, uh, class action mechanism is very relevant there, and uh, it will have implications for other industries, um, for for the government, for any powerful entity that may have done wrong to a lot of poor people or vulnerable people. Those people now have a a pathway to recourse that was not available to them before, and that is a really, really amazing thing. Now, John, before we let you go, what happens next? Are you sort of strapping yourself in for you know ten years of litigation? Um, 
I don't know. I don't make 10-year <laughs> plans. Um, look, there's a few options now, um, and I'll divide them into two. Uh, there's the legal way forward, and, and there's other. And so the legal way forward, there could be an appeal. The mining companies could appeal. Yep. Um, there is language in this judgment, uh, the likes of which I've not heard anywhere else, um, from the judges uh, condemning the way in which the mining companies have conducted themselves in in the in this litigation and saying that they have uh that that type of conduct obstructs justice and uh and 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 sends a warning to the mining companies to say don't conduct yourself in this way anymore because it's not right and uh the court has taken note of it um, and so I hope that the mining companies take that into consideration when considering whether to appeal. My view is is that this will be a very difficult judgment to appeal. Mm-hmm. And the second option going ahead? The second option in the legal framework is we go to this sort of big marathon trial or, or, or set of trials, and, 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 uh, and you determine common issues. So that's where we get the benefit of the class action mm-hmm. mechanism is Instead of bringing evidence on, there's a bunch of questions that have to be answered, like what did the mining companies know at different times? What could they have done? What didn't they do? Uh, what were the mining companies' duties? All those big questions that are common to everybody, you'll answer those in one big go instead of you know half a million times into individual trials. And that's where we get the benefit of the class action mechanism. So you go into that trial, or it could be a series of trials. Uh, that's going to be up to the applicants in the next court who hears the matter. Um, and then after that is all done, and you've got answers to those big common questions, there's going to be some lingering individual questions, like how much money does Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so get, uh, what, you know, a, a bunch of individual stuff, and that'll just be little things that'll be taken care of in due course. So that's the process going forward if this thing goes to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side, the mining companies now have a major incentive to really come to the table and take... Um, settlement negotiations, seriously. And, 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 and that's why they didn't want this. You know, they knew that people couldn't bring cases on their own. They knew they were too poor. They knew they were too sick. They knew that if there was no class action, uh, in the court's word, it is class action or no action at all. Mm. And they and that's why they tried to keep this thing out of the courts, because before they had no incentive to settle. They had no incentive to do right. And now, uh, now they have a major incentive to do right. Uh, and so, there, you know, there's a good possibility that people will come to the table and go into settlement negotiations and come out and settle the case with a, a big whopping sum of money that will then go to the people who need it. And one of the things that the court said, which I think is important, is that uh, the court, uh, they said that after certification, so at this stage, uh, a court uh, must approve any settlement agreement. So once they're, if they're is a settlement agreement on the table, the parties will have to return to court and have a court approve of it. And that, that's mm-hmm. in order to look out for the interest of the um, the class, because most of the class isn't in court. And so the court is saying, we're going to make sure that this is fair. Thank you very much, John, um, and best luck going ahead. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. I'm sure we'll speak to you soon on the issues again. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Man. That was John Stevens, Section 27 Legal Researcher. King, where are we headed now? Actually, going a bit backwards, back to back to food security, something we were trying to schedule in a bit earlier, but it's only come through now. Um, just in the conversation around responses to this, we've talked a lot about 
about the impact, the price, um, the fluctuation, the volatility, how it affects you know livelihoods, but not enough about the response. So I want to talk to to the to the Red Cross, and they have a massive response that they are planning, not only in South Africa but in the region, in a way to 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 counter the immediate response to the drought we're facing, but also strengthen resilience going forward. So on the line, we'll be talking to Dr. Michael Charles uh, from the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Uh, Dr. Charles, can you hear us? Yes, hello. Hello, can you hear us? Yes, I Fan- can hear you. Fantastic. Now, um, Doctor, I just wanted to talk a bit about um, the, the effects of the drought across the region. Um, so being based here in South Africa, we've been quite insular in understanding the impact of the drought and looking quite locally. Could you give us an idea of what, what the impact of this drought has been in, in, in other South African countries, Southern African countries, sorry? Yes, I mean, the impact has been quite quite dire. Um, if we take the Sadek region, we have roughly about 30 million people that are food insecure. If you put that in perspective regarding the total population of Sadek, which is about 280,000, we see that at least 10% of the total population are food insecure. These are communities that are already struggling to, to survive. Um, they've cut down from three meals to one meal. Sometimes they don't even have anything to eat at all. And we see that children have been pulled out of school because they cannot, they don't have enough energy to go to school. So the situation is quite dire. And as the Red Cross and the International Red Cross and the National Societies were very concerned and we're raising the alarm to the international community to, you know, gather some support around this so that we can get funding to assist the most vulnerable people. Um, and looking in your response, we've seen a, a, you know, a big commitment, 120 million Swiss franc over four years to support, you know, Red Cross societies, uh, in, 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 in responding to this drought. Uh, now there's some keywords I just wanted to ask about. It says that this, this, this focus of this initiative is, is designed to, to scale up drought response and also strengthen resilience. Could you just unpack those two, those two words? What does it mean? The immediate drought response and the resilience bit. What are those two sort of okay. two arms mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so certainly. I mean, I mean, for the drought response, we're looking at the emergency, the immediate things that we can do now, which is basically give people money to buy food or to give people food directly. Um, I think that's an, uh, a critical phase that we're looking at in terms of the emergency phase and making sure that people can have enough to eat and enough to, to, to survive on. That's the first phase. Now, when we go, when we, when, when we talk more into resilience, we need to look into the recovery phase. So how do people recover? We see that the effect of the drought is really because of lack of rainfall. So how do we promote irrigation systems? How do we create um, and build boreholes for the people to be able to, you know, water their plants? How do we ensure that we promote drought-resistant seeds? And this can be done by, by the Red Cross volunteers who are in the communities. The final thing is from the recovery phase, we go into resilience. How do we build the resilience of communities so that if, it, if any other shock comes in the next one year, two years, mm. at least they're able to withstand the shocks. Um, so that's what we're saying, that we need to work in a continuum. We cannot just focus on the emergency alone because we know that climate variation is here to stay with us. We know that we will have limited rainfall in the coming years. So how do we already start looking at the longer term? And that's why we're saying that we need 110 million U.S. dollars or Swiss francs for the next four years to really be able to prepare our communities so that they can be resilient to drought. Mm. 
I'm glad you brought up the figure, um, the 110 million Swiss franc, and I'm curious how what that amount looks like relative to the scale of the problem. Uh, you mentioned that um, you, the, the key thing is to avoid this from being a catastrophe. Is that is that enough money? Is that is that is that enough? Do you need more commitment in terms of in terms of government commitments, financial commitments, manpower? What else is needed? It's certainly not enough. I think you know the the, the situation is quite dire, as I have explained. What we are saying is that we want to go into partnerships. We see that there are other UN agencies, WSP, FAO, UNICEF, that are already committed funding and are already doing something. Mm. We see that government has already also started committed funding towards this. So what we are saying is that as the Red Cross, we need to partner. We need to make sure that we, we build collaborations with communities, with the local governments, with the provincial governments, with you know various humanitarian stakeholders. So if we all commit, Towards doing our own part, then certainly we will be able to, you know, put our efforts together and then reach where we want to reach. Doctor Webstein, in the case of some other droughts in, in the past, that the sort of international community, um, you know, so significant NGOs and and government actors have often either haven't been able to, or haven't had the resources to act um, until it's too late. Um, in, in in this case, is this? Are you confident that that won't happen this time, or, or is that, or is that a strong fear that this thing could get so dire that we will, we will basically watch people die of hunger? Well, it, it, it is certainly our hope that it will not get to that stage, and that's why we, as the Red Cross, and together with other humanitarian stakeholders, are now raising the concern. We're shouting out loud to the international community to say we need to do something before it gets worse. I think if we can gather enough momentum, if we can speak to people's conscience, then we will not see people dying. And that is really our purpose. And that is why we're saying, let us invest now to really be able to save lives later and to be, able to, to be able to also save in terms of cost later. Because we know prevention is better than cure. So if we can already start looking at issues around resilience, looking at longer term development, then we will certainly be able to save at the longer run. Doctor, my final question before you let you go, you mentioned the role of governments and, and sort of large organizations uh, from individuals. Are you taking individual donations and individual volunteers? Are there ways just regular citizens, concerned citizens can get involved? Yes, certainly. Anybody can get involved. Um, we can take you know, donations in terms of people's time. We're, we're, we're a volunteer-based organization. We can get, take financial donations as well. Our website is www.ifrc.org. And when you go onto the website, there will be a place where people can donate towards this, this noble cause. Doctor, thank you so much. Um, we'll make sure to tweet out links to, to the website you've mentioned and, and make sure to channel any feedback we get through to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Fantastic. That's Dr. Michael Charles from the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, and we'll tweet out the link to the website he just mentioned. Unfortunately, that's it. All done. Thank you for joining us today. Um, as usual, love engaging with you on ADM shows at day. Greg, will we be here next week? Will we not? Nobody really knows. It's a mystery. I have That's to keep people it, guessing. Man. Tune in to find out. <laughs> have a wonderful evening. We love you very much. We'll see you next week. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.